This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This podcast is in the loop, the Legion of Osiris podcasts. Osiris is creating a community that connects people like you with live experiences and podcasts about artists and topics you love. Get in the loop at OsirisPod.com. Hi, this is Dave Davies of the Kinks, and you're listening to Rock and Roll Archaeology. DIY and How Studios present Deeper Digs in Rock, part of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. Music, culture, technology, and rock and roll. Now, on with the show. Hello, diggers. Welcome to another edition of Deeper Digs in Rock, a production of Rock and Roll Archaeology. Christian Swain here. I am the Rock and Roll Archaeologist, and I'm behind the mic in San Francisco today. Uh, Just a bit of news. We are now available on Spotify, Radio.com, and most recently, Pandora. In fact, if you search, you can find us on about 40 different distribution platforms these days. We are growing and growing, uh, and all because of you. All of us at the RNRA love telling these stories about the great moments of rock and roll in a variety of manners. Uh, and there is something for everyone. Please let us know what you like and even what you may not like so much. Tell us what you think. And you can support us via Patreon with a monthly donation, or if a monthly expense is asking too much, you can just make a one-time donation. Finally, and this is the one that really matters most to us, if you enjoy what we do here, then please tell a friend about Rock and Roll Archaeology. Thank you. Okay, business handled. We are good. (laughs) Let's do it. dissect it in great detail. Our special guest is author Saul Austerlitz. His latest book is called Just a Shot Away, Peace, Love, and Tragedy with the Rolling Stones at Altamont. Saul is a writer and critic. His work has been published in Rolling Stone, Spin, and Pace magazine, as well as several newspapers of note, like the New York Times. He's the author of Money for Nothing, a history of the music video from the Beatles to the White Stripes, and two fine books on comedy in film and television. So he's got the goods to talk music and culture. 
This book certainly elevates him to a new level in official rock and roll chronicle circles. Uh, but does it belong in canon? <laughs> a lot has been written about the subject of this book. Many have come before Mr. Austerlitz. Altamont, uh, a single word. That's all I have to say, and every rocker worth his or her salt has images of Hell's Angels in their imaginations, beating the crap out of stone hippies on bad acid throughout a cold December day. And worse, ending with the murder of Meredith Hunter, a young African-American concert-goer. Altamont. It supposedly ended the liberal idealism of the 1960s, the smoking gun that culture writers point to as case closed. Ever since December 6, 1969, in the public's mind, uh, fueled by the usual media storyline of winners and losers, Altamont is the upside-down world to the Woodstock Music Festival, which was held only a few months before in early August. Where Woodstock was all sunshine and rainbows, Altamont was the seventh circle in Dante's hellscape. <laughs> but is that really true? And wasn't there a third festival that many forget about? One that went just about perfectly? Altamont, it's our subject today, and we are going to dig deep. Please allow me to introduce to you Mr. Saul Austerlitz. Welcome to Deeper Digs and Rocks, Saul Austerlitz. Uh, how are you doing today? Very good. Thanks so much for having me on. Oh, of course, of course. We love having uh, the authors uh, that are still chronicling uh, the age of rock and roll on with us. So, okay, first question. Um, so there's been so much written and documented on the December 6, 1969 Altamont concert. Why another account? Well, I, f I felt like in all that had been written and all that had been said about it, so much of it had emerged from a kind of self-serving position. And I don't necessarily mean that in, in an entirely negative sense, but much of what had already been said was usually in the form of a memoir or a kind of reminiscence about that day. And there was often a desire to pass the blame or to indicate that the person who was writing or speaking hadn't been responsible for the way things had gone wrong that day. So I felt like there was room to tell the story in a kind of larger sense and one that was not uh, intimately tied to one particular person's perspective. And the second aspect that moved me to start working on this book was that I felt like the story of Meredith Hunter, the story of the young man who'd been killed at the concert had never really adequately been told, uh, that there'd been quite a bit said about him, but that his story almost inevitably began on that day uh, and didn't really provide much context for what had taken place. So I felt like that was an aspect of the story that was really central to any understanding of Altamont and hadn't uh, properly been 
and told. Okay, um, yeah, uh, that is a, a big part of the book is the um, the story of Meredith Hunter and his family. Um, but before we get there, uh, let's get the Saul Austerlitz superhero origin story. How did how did you get into music journalism? <laughs> well, um, in college and graduate school, I studied film and was very interested in writing about film and television and got started doing that as soon as I finished school. And I had always been interested in being a kind of jack of all trades as a writer, though, and, and writing mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. popular culture in general. So my first book was called Money for Nothing and was a history of the music video. And in some ways that uh, helped prepare me for doing this in the sense that it was a combination of writing about music, writing about the moving image and writing about the ways that those differing styles and and differing aspects of culture intertwine and intersect. Um, So that's really the start of my desire to write about culture in a broader sense and kind of tell bigger picture narratives. So that was your first book, Money for Nothing, uh, uh, and then you wrote a couple of comedy uh, media books as well, right? That's correct, yeah. I, I wrote a book called Another Fine Mess that was a history of American film comedy, and then one called Sitcom, which looked at the growth and development of the American sitcom. Uh, both sound interesting books. I'm, I'm going to have to go and, and pick them up uh, as well uh, here. Uh, I have a bit of an interest in uh, film comedy and uh, you know film and television uh, as well. So uh, all of our diggers out there that uh, are interested in that, I'm sure we'll uh, look forward to grabbing those uh, as well as this book. Hey, diggers, a quick pause in the action to tell you about a new solution we are talking about here at Rock and Roll Archaeology. If you're a contact user like me, you may be interested in simple contacts, the most convenient way to renew your contact lens prescription and reorder anywhere and in minutes. Need to renew your prescription? Take a five-minute simple contact vision test online. It'll then be reviewed by a licensed doctor, and then they will ship out your new lenses. All you need is your current contacts, an internet connection, and 10 feet of space. And if you have an unexpired prescription and just need more contacts, just upload a photo of your doctor's information and order new lenses. Simple Contacts does all the hard work for you by taking care of verifying and confirming your prescription. This is so convenient, fast, reliable. It's a five-star experience. All brands and lens types are available. And most importantly, Simple Contacts saves you money. Again, check out Simple Contacts and get $20 off by going to simplecontacts.com slash rockandroll. Or just enter code rockandroll, and that's R-O-C-K-N-R-O-L-L at checkout. Give it a try. You'll thank me later. So tell us about putting the book together. Um, you know, tell us about the research. How how long did it take? And you know, what you began to piece together as you uh, put this book into form. Well, I worked on this book for about eighteen months, and I got started by tracking down some of the people who had either been at the show as attendees or had been involved somehow in the planning for the show or had played the show. Yeah, I believe you talked to about 80 different uh, people that were uh, somehow involved, right? That sounds about right. Uh, So, yeah, so it it was kind of an interesting process in as much as uh, you're sort of following a trail that you can't necessarily see all that far in front of you. So 
you talk to one person, you ask them to put you in touch with other people, either, you know, people that they worked with, people that they went to the show with, whatever the case may be. And, um, you know, each person ends up having their own story and their own version of the day. And a big part of the challenge and, and part of the exciting part of it, I think, as well, is trying to figure out how the different pieces that people give you fit together. You know, uh, how putting one the person's puzzle story, mm-hmm. exactly, mm-hmm. how one person's story kind of dovetails with another. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, there's also an, an inevitable challenge in figuring out what to, what aspects of people's stories to value and what parts to put aside. Part, part in the sense of, of telling a story that makes sense to the reader and doesn't get sidetracked. And part as well, just in as much as we're talking about an event that happened almost 50 years ago at this yeah, point. Right, right. Uh, we're talking about a day in which people were drinking and doing drugs and, and engaging in other kinds of activity that may have um, affected their memories of the day. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, a, a big part of it in terms of this job of putting the puzzle together uh, is figuring out what pieces are real and what pieces aren't, you know, and, and sort of understanding or trying to understand what actually took place on the day. Yeah, because it is a, a bit of a morphing story uh, from that day to uh, today. Now, many compare the Altamont events to Woodstock, which is always portrayed as successful and a high point of the counterculture. Uh, and we'll get to that particular moment in a minute. But there were actually three large-scale music festivals in 1969, and the Rolling Stones play two of them. All three have hundreds of thousands of concert goers, uh, but only one is really, truly a successful event, and that is the July 5th Hyde Park concert. So let's start there and discuss why it did work so well, because I, I really think that is the beginning of the real story. Yeah, it was really interesting for me to get to see some of the footage from that concert and to get a sense of what the mood was and and potentially what made it more successful than some of the other 1969 shows. Um, It was helpful for me to understand that the concert took place fairly shortly after Brian Jones had died. Two days. And so a, a big chunk of the concert was devoted to his memory and Mick Jagger uh, reads a poem by Shelley from the stage and there's a release of <laughs> the butterfly. butterflies, I believe. <laughs> yes. And, you know, not all of this feels entirely successful to our possibly more jaded eyes in 2018, but it's telling um, it seems how- a bit contrived. Uh, you know, the fact is the concert was originally built to introduce McTaylor as the new guitar player. Brian wasn't supposed to die. Uh, he just had been kicked out of the band. Mm-hmm. Yeah. At the same time, there's something remarkable about how polite the audience is, about how willing they are to to sit through the entirety of the show how people stay afterwards to help clean up. Um, it's just a, an entirely different aura than either of the big American shows that come later in the year. Right. Uh, yes. It, it is an English, mostly English audience. You know, a stiff upper lip and all of that. You know, very different uh, vibe there uh, at Hyde Park. Uh, another interesting fact, since you brought up the film, is that we are introduced to a contingent of Hell's Angels in that movie. Yes. I, taking a look at the footage, you can get a glimpse of sort of the one of, one of the roots of 
how the disaster of Altima comes about. And I think that's in part because the Rolling Stones employed people as, I guess we would call it security, who they believed to be Hells Angels. But if you look at the footage, it's pretty clear that they're not. They're no, a bunch of just older men kids. and teenagers. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they have leather jackets yeah. that look like they're homemade. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, they're clearly nothing at all like hell, actual California Hells Angels. No, they look more like rejects from uh, the uh, child army leftover of the uh, Nazi regime. Exactly. But I do think that that's where part of the confusion sets in. And maybe later on, when the Rolling Stones are told, oh, we're going to have the Hells Angels provide security at this show in California, that they may have had a level of comfort with the idea that they might not otherwise have had by virtue of this kind of deliberate confusion. Yeah. Yeah. I see the the point. You could see Jagger and company say, oh, those guys. Oh, yeah, they're they were great. They were easy. I can I can see that. So above the title, superstars are at Altamont or are obviously the Rolling Stones. And I think we need to get their story and their situation in 1969. So what can you tell us about that? Well, they had actually been away from the United States for about three years at that point. Uh, Both Mick Jagger and Keith Richards had run into a a series of troubles with the law in Britain, mostly involving kind of trumped-up drug charges, but it had prevented them from doing any traveling. Yeah, I I believe they couldn't get a work visa uh, in the United States because of those charges. That's correct. And so the 69 tour was intended to serve as a kind of reintroduction of the band, not in the sense that people had forgotten about them. Obviously, they hadn't. They had had huge success in the United States, but fans hadn't really seen them in quite some time. So the idea was to tour all around the country and um, put on these big shows and then kind of wrap it up with some sort of as yet undeclared final hurrah for the audience. And part of the idea was sort of Uh, ironically and tragically ironically in the context of what would come was that the Rolling Stones really wanted the tour to include a lot of their personal musical idols, you know, a lot of African-American musicians that they had looked up Mm -hmm. to. And they were very intent about including them, even in places that were distinctly unfriendly to the idea. So the Stones end up playing a show at Auburn University, which had only integrated uh, its student body a number of years prior. Just a few, I think like three. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so they bring along African-American musicians there where I'm guessing at least that the audience was not entirely receptive to them. And so... Well, the uh, audience, maybe, maybe not. The authorities, probably not. That's definitely true. And so along the way, they end up enduring quite a bit of criticism from people in the media like Ralph Gleason, who writes for... Uh, Rolling Stone and the San Francisco Chronicle talking about how the Stones were gouging their audiences with the ticket prices. Now, to our eyes, uh, tickets that cost seven fifty to see the Rolling Stones seem reasonable, but at the time, as opposed to five bucks or six bucks, <laughs> I, yes, I, I know, I know what you mean. It seems like price gouging, uh, you know, but yeah, it does seem a little ridiculous in hindsight. Yeah, but at the time, at least, there you know there was quite a bit of criticism about it. And so this idea for the free show in San Francisco develops partially out of that in, in the idea of assuaging their critics to some extent by saying, we understand we're putting on this big show for the kids. We're not charging any money. 
this is our way of saying thanks to everybody. At the end of it, yeah, because this tour is a, a huge tour. You know, it's uh, considered one of the first real big uh, single band uh, and rather debauched rock and roll tours that kind of hearken to what the 70s is actually going to bring with all the drugs and uh, the women and the backstage shenanigans, the uh, the hotels, the trashing of hotels and so on and so forth that others, uh, you know, follow suit with this 69 tour. I mean, the Stones are, 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 are at their peak here. I mean, they just put out Beggar's Banquet. They're getting ready to put out Let It Bleed. Um, in some respects, they're bigger than the Beatles in 1969. Yeah, I mean, they're they're arriving in the U.S. at kind of this ideal moment in terms of the arc of their career. Right, conquering heroes. Right, right, mm-hmm. right, right. Yeah, they are really, really the thing uh, here in 1969, and they're going to prove it uh, with this tour. They've got a new guitar player, uh, Mick Taylor, uh, who's uh, you know going to set the world on fire along with Keith Richards on the other side. They're ready to go. So, all right. So Woodstock. Um, uh, August 15th through 17th. Let's let's break that down on why you think it worked and, 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 and how it didn't and how it maybe helped uh, lead up to what we're mostly going to talk about today, which is Altamont. Well, I think it's helpful to think about both shows in the context of the culture of the era and, and both shows as emerging from the American counterculture in the sense that there was this idea that there was an intimate link between music and politics and kind of um, cultural social life. Right. Yeah, and cultural change. And part of that was that this idea that cultural change was inevitable, that the youth, you know, the young people of the country, the counterculture. The baby boomers. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're just going to get bigger and stronger and more powerful as each day passed, and that eventually it would lead to this kind of um, unclear but definitely coming social change. And so I think that part of that was was this idea that everyone was on the same page, everyone was on the same team. Yeah. Uh, if we had a big show, everyone would come, everyone would obviously be on their best behavior everyone agreed about what they wanted to accomplish with these sorts of events. And so there wasn't all that much need, relatively speaking, to do any kind of policing or organizing of the show. Oh, actually, to try to shy away from that, that authority was untrusted. Right. So in addition to this belief in terms of the people at the show, there was also a kind of fear or hostility towards figures of authority, right? Mm -hmm. The idea that you would invite the police to come to your show was crazy. No one... No one would even consider doing that. It would be like raining on your own parade. And so anathema. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And so up to that point, this plan had mostly worked in part because it was often smaller groups, uh, in part just because of luck. And I think what's telling about Woodstock is that in terms of how it's treated in the media and in terms of how it's treated in the kind of larger counterculture, there's this idea that it's an enormous triumph. Yeah. And I think that that response is baked in to some extent before the concert really even happens. Everyone wants it to be an enormous success. And so it's essentially declared to be one instantaneously. And it's not to say that Woodstock isn't at least somewhat successful, but there are a lot of hints uh, in looking at how it actually played out that the lack of advanced planning um, caused a lot of chaos where there might not otherwise have had to be so much. And so 
I think that Woodstock comes off relatively well in as much as there isn't kind of one central disaster a la Altamont, but it's not clear to me that it's that the lack of kind of centralized planning serves it particularly well. You know, you end up having, if you look at the coverage of the concert from the moment, you know, there's not enough food at the show. Uh, local communities end up having to kind of bring food by just to feed all the people who are there. Mm. Everything is kind of proceeding in a semi-controlled, chaotic environment. So really, the takeaway might be that they were lucky to not have a greater disaster occur. There's a real element of luck. Yeah. And and even on the day itself, there is some discussion amongst the bands and the people planning the show that things have worked out for the best. Yeah. And that yeah. it didn't necessarily have to be that way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, all right. So so now we have two of the three big events. And, and I think it's really important for us to include that Hyde Park event. Most people don't, you know, they, they, they compare and contrast the two. Uh, and, and I think uh, the third leg is important. Uh, there were just as many people at Hyde Park as there were at Woodstock and Altamont, uh, you know, somewhere between 200 and 500,000 uh, for each, uh, you know, given the crowd size uh, adjustment and guess at the time. So, so in the book, you do let's switch subjects here a little bit. You dive deep into what is usually left to the gruesome end of most tellings, and that is the life of Meredith Hunter and his family. So let's talk about that. What what did you discover about him and his family? Well, to begin with, I felt like it was important to provide some context, in as much as Meredith Hunter's death is often treated as a story that's about rock concerts and bands and the counterculture and maybe the Hells Angels as well, and doesn't really take into account the larger picture of race relations in the country, which I think is the kind of more logical place to begin the story. And so Mm. I felt like it was necessary to learn more about him and his family and about their origins to kind of understand where they were coming from and and how their story fit into a sort of larger narrative about race. So I ended up speaking to Meredith Hunter's sister, uh, Dixie Ward, and his niece, Tammy Parker, and they very graciously agreed to speak to me about their own experiences and and about uh, Meredith's life. And it was really compelling to me to kind of understand how that story kind of fit in. So they, they had... Meredith's mother uh, had moved from Texas to California and had settled in the Bay Area. So from Jim Crow, Texas, to uh, less racist California. Exactly. So very much uh, along the lines of a kind of larger movement that was taking place. Oh, the Great Migration. Yeah. Yeah, where African-Americans were leaving the South and and looking for somewhere that was less hostile to them. Mm So I think the story kind of fits a larger story in that perspective, but at the same time, uh, the particulars are notable. Meredith Hunter's mother suffered from schizophrenia and um, seemed to have associated with a number of boyfriends or partners who did not treat her particularly well in a variety of fashions. Mm -hmm. And so uh, this sort of overarching narrative that I got was that Meredith Hunter had grown up in a household uh, that was somewhat unstable, uh, unstable in part because of his mother's mental health challenges and that Meredith and 
his siblings had played a large part in taking care of each other and kind of looking out for each other. And later on, as as Meredith gets older, he ends up getting in some trouble with the law and spending some time in juvenile detention. And the impression that I got was that that was in part due to the uh, lack of certainty at home, that being somewhere like juvenile detention offered a kind of familiarity and comfort that home sometimes couldn't. Mm. And so he ends up spending some time there. And when he comes back um, as a somewhat older teenager, that's when he first meets Patty Bredehoft, his girlfriend, who, who he ends up attending Altamont with. So tell us about Meredith himself. I mean, uh, my understanding is that, you know, he was a pretty good kid. Yes, uh, that's definitely the sense that I got from talking to people as well. Um, he was someone who liked to listen to other people. He preferred listening to talking. He was often the person that people turned to when they had particular concerns or worries that they wanted to talk out with someone else. He was very playful. Um, he enjoyed being out in nature and communing with animals. He often wanted to, to kind of adopt animals that he encountered in the wild and bring them home. And, and you know, his mother wouldn't have any of it. <laughs> it helped me to have a bit more of a sense of what his life was like prior to the concert and, and kind of what motivated him. Yeah, I, mean, I believe Patty uh, Redlhoff has spoken nothing but, but highly about him as a person. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and and he, um, as far as I could tell, he wasn't particularly a fan of the Rolling Stones or, or really of any of the bands who were playing that day. But I think the idea of having a kind of gathering like Altamont, where so many people would be together and kind of enjoying each other's company uh, and, and sort of celebrating being young and free was very appealing to him. I think that was more uh, at the heart of what attracted him to be at Altamont than any of the particular artists who were playing. Right, right. It was the the gathering of the tribes, the uh, the social uh, adventure of three hundred thousand people. You know, uh, enjoying these good vibes is what the attraction was to uh, to Meredith Hunter, right? Yes, I think that's exactly correct. All right, so Altamont. Um, I think the first question is, why did it take place 50 miles from San Francisco's Haight-Ashbury district? That is a very good question. So it began, the idea for the show began as a free concert in Golden Gate Park. And the planning was that bands like the Grateful Dead and Jefferson Airplane, who are from San Francisco, had put on these— and had. Yeah, lots of shows in uh, in Golden Gate. Right, had, had put on exactly these kinds of shows uh, where they would show up in the park, give everyone some advance notice that they were about to play, uh, and then probably a few thousand fans would end up coming and, and enjoying the concert. Yeah, the human being, uh, probably the most famous. And at the same time in that planning, th- that planning also included the Hells Angels, that for these small relatively intimate concerts in Golden Gate Park. The Grateful Dead or Jefferson Airplane had employed the Hells Angels not so much to provide security for the fans as to stand near the generators. <laughs> Protect the equipment. <laughs> right, yeah, right. To, to keep anyone from, you know... Keep the show going. Right, right, right. Accidentally or in some kind of, you know, drug-addled confusion, mm-hmm. messing with the generators and causing the show to have to end before they were ready. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's key because, again, it kind of builds in this sense of comfort with the idea of the Hells Angels, 
being employed as part of the show that in retrospect seems very odd and off-putting. Yeah. So the local authorities in San Francisco had ultimately decided that they were not comfortable with having this big free Rolling Stones show in Golden Gate Park. So the organizers were looking around to have somewhere else to put on the show and first were planning to have it in a place called Sears Point and did a lot of advance. Which is a, a large a large raceway uh, in Marin County. Exactly. And, and about 30, 20 or 30 miles away. Right. So a bit closer, still not, you know, not, not immediately ideal. in San Francisco, but, but somewhere possibly more familiar to people living in San Francisco or in Berkeley. Mm-hmm. And uh, they did a fair amount of advanced planning for that, did things like build um, a stage that was designed specifically to be placed at Sears Point. Uh, and then a few days, less than a week before the show was to go on, um, the owners of Sears Point ended up pulling out of the show. And at that point... Now, that's 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 an interesting story of why they pulled out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the owners of Sears Point uh, were a company called Filmways, I believe. <laughs> right. And they also owned uh, a venue in Los Angeles where the Stones had played on their tour. Yeah, well, the, the fabulous forum. Right, the forum. And they had wanted the Stones to do two shows at the Forum, and they ended up only doing one, and I guess had cost them a a significant amount of money by virtue of making that decision. Mm -hmm. And so the Sears Point thing fell through in part because Filmways wanted more money to make up for what they understood to be their losses because of the Forum situation. So at that point, I think that in retrospect, that might have been the moment to say, you know what, this concert Let's call yeah. is maybe yeah. not going to work out. And right. we did our best. We, you know, we made a real good faith effort to make it happen, but it seems like the odds are just against us and let's call it a day. And instead, what they did was to say, okay, we really need to find a venue ASAP. Does anyone know of anything? And the owner of the Altamont Speedway came forward and said, I'd love to have you guys come play at my venue, you know, play at the Speedway. Why don't you come check it out and see what you think? So the Stones ended up sending a few people uh, to fly over by helicopter and take a look at it. And uh, they said that while it was challenging and not ideal, that they could make it happen. So they end up making this kind of last minute decision to move the concert to a third venue and, you know, have only a few days to do any kind of planning or organization uh, for what is planned to be, at the very least, a 100,000-person concert. It ends up being more like a 300,000-person concert. Right, right. Uh, And done or put together in in less than four days, and and we'll get to that here in a second. But I want to step backwards a little bit in time. And, you know, you brought up the fact that uh, the Grateful Dead, the uh, Jefferson Airplane and and others had done these uh, free shows in uh, Golden Gate Park. Uh, This seemed like a natural. I think it was the Grateful Dead who really wanted to get the Stones, who they were, you know, heroes uh, to the dead, uh, to come to San Francisco and, and put this on. So I think they sent... Uh, their manager at the time, uh, Rock Scully, to London after the Hyde Park uh, show to kind of begin the negotiations of, of, of this concert. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, my sense is that there was 
kind of mutual interest on both ends, and and the beginnings of this concert kind of bubble up on both sides. So the Stones really want to have some kind of big mm-hmm. celebratory concert, and the Dead want to have the Rolling Stones come and want to kind of put on a bigger, grander version of what they'd already been doing in a smaller fashion. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, in terms of the planning for the show, uh, it's important to note that the Grateful Dead and the Grateful Dead's management team are just as involved in organizing the show as anyone in, with the Rolling Stones is. Yeah, yeah, I think that's important to note because uh, that's how events began to fray. Certainly at the time, uh, the Grateful Dead was not known for their organizational skills. No, no. And, and you know, the concert or the idea for the concert goes through a variety of permutations. Right. And there are all sorts of bigger or just different plans for having the concert support kind of unity in the Bay Area um, or support certain kinds of kind of social political group. Ground zero of the counterculture hippie movement. Yeah, and that all basically falls by the wayside and it becomes more of a straightforward concert. Uh, but still being run or organized by uh, people who kind of have an ideological commitment to not planning things too much. (laughs) Uh, To say the least. Um, So that begs the question, you know, also, uh, you know, uh, in San Francisco is perhaps the most successful concert impresario uh, in the history of music, and that's Bill Graham. Why is he not involved? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I'm not really sure. It seems like there's some hurt feelings on a variety of parts, but in retrospect, it definitely seems like things would have gone much more smoothly if someone who actually had significant experience of putting on concerts or, you know, kind of mass gatherings had been more involved. And I think even the people with the show, the people involved in Altamont know that to some extent when they call Michael Lang and ask mm-hmm. him to yeah. fly out. Who had put on the Woodstock show. Right. So he had put on Woodstock. So he obviously was sort of the, the first name on, on, on the tip of people's tongues when it came to doing something like this. But, you know, he ends up coming out three days before the concert. So there's a distinct limitation on how much he can do. He can yeah. realistically yeah. do at this time. Right. So let's bring in another character that I've actually had the chance to speak with uh, regarding this and, and, and other uh, aspects of his life, and, and that's Sam Cutler, because rightly or wrongly, he acted as the Stones' representative in the hurried negotiations to find a site and, and set it up before the show. Yes. Um, so explain to the audience who Sam is uh, and, and, and what his involvement was. So Sam Cutler is a relatively young guy who um, ends up getting involved with the Rolling Stones in Britain and uh, is brought out to help run the 69 U.S. tour. He had a lot to do with setting up the Hyde Park show as well. Mm-hmm. So that made and sense so the, the Hyde Park show, yeah, had obviously been a, a, a substantial success. Yeah. And, and so he, he was asked to get involved in planning for – uh, for this show as well. And the sense that you get from Cutler and from some of the other people who worked for the Stones was that the band themselves were pretty hands-off in terms of the planning. Uh, they wanted the show. They knew that. They wanted 
the show to go off well, they didn't really want to engage with too many of the details in terms of how things would work or when things would happen. And so, uh, which is, which is surprising. Um, uh, and, and yes, I, I got that from your, your book that Mick Jagger, who is known to be a micromanager, uh, was not so in 1969. Well, I, th- I think, you know, obviously people change over time. And I think part of it is that he's a very young man at this point. You know, we, we think of him as kind of one of the grand old men of rock and roll. <laughs> and he's obviously been around for a tremendously long time. But when this is happening, he's still in his late 20s. True, you know, he's, true. He's only- but he's not a novice either. Uh, you know, uh, they, they have been successful for, geez, almost a decade by now. That's true. Um, and uh, clearly they had already put on Hyde Park, but I would say that more generally speaking, this is still before the era of really enormous concerts, right? These are some of the oh, first yes, really, these, really giant yes. concerts. Yeah, yeah. And so there's there's just not a lot of collective knowledge out there about how to do these things. And, you know, it, it's definitely curious that uh, the stones don't seem to be all that invested in the details, but I wonder if that isn't also due in part to coming at the very end of a long and presumably draining concert tour mm-hmm. uh, that had all sorts of details where they just maybe had run out of interest in, in kind of advanced planning. Now, so they leave it to, uh, and, and let's face it, Sam is, you know, relatively a novice at putting these on. He's had one big successful one uh, that was uh, the Hyde Park show. Uh, he then is the tour manager for the 69 American tour uh, which with the Stones, which is hugely successful. And now he's sent to San Francisco to uh, work with the likes of uh, Melvin Belli to get this thing done so that they can finish up this uh, triumphant tour that the uh, the Stones are, are, are in the middle of. Yeah, and you can see some of this in the footage that's included in the Maisel's Brothers documentary, Gimme Shelter. Mm-hmm. Um, there is this kind of strange mixture. In part, there's a fear that, okay, things are not going to go well, right? That, you know, there, there hasn't been enough planning that's happened. You know, where are we going to put all the cars of all the people who are planning to drive to this concert, given that there's only space for, you know, a certain number of thousand of cars and there may be very you know, five or 10 right. times as many. Mm-hmm. And yet at the same time, and, and you see this with Melvin Belli, but really with everybody, there's this sense that the concert is already ordained to be a triumph. Yeah. It's already going to be amazing. It's just a question of where <laughs> kind of crossing the finish line and then everyone sort of collectively patting each other on the back. Yeah. Yeah. So th- there's a there's this weird kind of lack of urgency about thinking through what some of the challenges may be or what some of the challenges that may be getting introduced by virtue of the plans that are already in place. Yeah, and, and as you said, it, it's obvious in, uh, let's add to our supporting cast here, and really integral in how the full story arrives to us, in certainly in the future, and that is the Maisel brothers, uh, Albert and David, and Charlotte Zwerin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so so they the, the Maisel brothers themselves had initially been hired for a kind of nebulous project. Uh, the Rolling Stones wanted to hire them to shoot some footage for something. They weren't really sure. The band wasn't really sure exactly what it would be. They wanted them to come to New York and film them at Madison Square Garden. And then when they had 
whatever it was going to be at the end of the tour, this large concert, that they would come out and film that as well. And at the point where this agreement is being made, it's not, obviously no one knows what Altamont will be yet. They don't even know it's going to be at Altamont. But I think more than that, it's not, it's not uh, guaranteed that it's going to be a film at this point, thinking as maybe the Stones will somehow use this footage for a movie of their own or, or something. Mm-hmm. And so the Maisel's brothers plan to basically have three days of shooting. They're going to do one day of shooting in New York. Uh, and then they'll, you know, have a kind of brief shoot in San Francisco filming this concert. Uh, so they bring out some people from New York, some, uh, camera operators and sound operators, and then they hire a whole bunch of young camera operators and sound operators. So they end up having a fairly large crew, including George Lucas as a young cameraman, including George Lucas. Yes. Amazingly enough. And, um, each of them are told, uh, in essence, to come to the show, film whatever seems interesting to them. Some some people are told to be on the stage. Some are told to wander the crowd and kind of capture color there. But the idea, again, is this is going to be some kind of amazing Woodstock-esque day in the counterculture. Let's make sure to get it all on film. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, all right, let's, you know, let's bring in the villain to the story because uh, any uh, uh, Shakespearean tragedy requires a, a great villain with a great story. And that's the Hell's Angels chosen to be security. So mm-hmm. explain to everybody who doesn't know, uh, you know, what the angel, not not the Hell's Angels in the UK, <laughs> but the Hell's Angels in America, and especially the Hells Angels in California are? Yeah, so I think it's helpful to, to have a somewhat larger perspective on, on bikers in general, that um, the idea of riding motorcycles together with a group of other men uh, really emerges at after World War II in the U.S., mm-hmm. that a lot of men who had served in the military in some fashion had you know, rode motorcycles or had engaged with some kind of driving or, or heavy equipment and had kind of fallen in love with the idea of machinery. Mm-hmm. And so they got many of them returned home and found whatever jobs they could, but sort of were hungry for a kind of camaraderie and masculine togetherness. Oh, the, the excitement, the adventure that, uh, you know, military life in a world war will bring uh, somebody who survived through it. There's an adrenaline rush that's now missing back at home, perhaps. Exactly. So so a lot of these men find their way to uh, owning and riding motorcycles and uh, end up forming motorcycle riding groups. And I, I say it like that because you know, most of the men who did this, most of the men who who were part of these groups, were nothing at all like the Hell's Angels. No, uh, no criminality involved or implied. They just were guys who liked to putter with motorcycles, fix them up, ride them together. The freedom of it. Was, it. Uh, it's, uh, it's amazing. Yeah, yeah. It, it was you know a way of letting off mm. steam or just kind of enjoying each other's company, and even. Uh, within the world of motorcycle riders is understood that there was a kind of distinction. So groups like the Hells Angels would call themselves the one percenters with the idea that 99% of motorcycle riders were kind of, in their eyes, these sort of vanilla people. Oh, the who weekend would, you know, never, right? Yeah. 
and uh, you know, the one percenters were, were these self-understood tough guys, you know, who kind of skirted the edge of, of criminality. And so the Hells Angels— This wasn't a hobby. This was a lifestyle. Yeah, and even within that, there was still some gradation. A lot of the Hells Angels, at least in the kind of early and mid-60s when they first come to light and become something that people are aware of, are still men who have jobs— uh, you know, they, they're they not full-time bikers in, in kind of the sense we imagine later. Um, but, you know, Hunter S. Thompson writes a book about the Hells Angels <laughs> yes. that comes out later in the 60s. And, and that's one of the first times that I think the kind of larger American culture first takes note of them, that yeah. they're kind of rough and uncouth and... and well, e- even way beyond uh, Marlon Brando's The Wild One. Right, right. No, there's there's already this idea of the biker in in the larger culture, but the specifics of the Hell's Angels uh, emerge a bit later. And Thompson's book is very interesting, and and I think that part of what he does is is he has a kind of sympathy for the people he's writing about, but at the same time he's he is unblinking in the way that he depicts their excesses. You know that they kind of wander from town to town beating up strangers, um, sometimes attracting women, sometimes taking advantage of them, and that there's a kind of uh, grotesque quality to their behavior that, you know, we kind of can't help but take notice of. And and an undercurrent of the book is that, and, and of the treatment of the Hells Angels in general in the media, is that there is this sort of strange link between them and the counterculture. Uh, where from our contemporary perspective, we kind of think of them as being polar opposites. At the time, there was this understanding that both of them, both groups had a lot of affinities with each other. Yeah, eschewed uh, authority. They uh, wanted ultimate freedom. They did not want to live in the constraints of the conformist society. Exactly, exactly. And and so they end up kind of finding ways to get along with each other. And, you know, the Hells Angels like to be invited to listen to music. They like to be invited to go do drugs and to meet women. Um, the bands from the counterculture like to be associated with guys who appear to be particularly tough and menacing. And everyone kind of gets something out of the arrangement. The counterculture feels like they've found allies in their mission to sort of bring down the squares. Uh, the bikers feel like they get invited to go have fun in cool places. And there's this kind of collective agreement to get along. And so part of that is also, you know, being hired and to come out to the shows in Golden Gate Park and be a part of those. And and so by the time Altima comes around, there's a kind of longstanding alliance yeah. between the San Francisco bands and the Hells Angels. So the day comes and the crowd arrives and it already starts off poorly. I believe a young man is drowned early in the day, uh, even before the concert starts uh, in a like a drainage uh, that uh, somehow is associated with the California aqueduct. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, so uh, I don't think you dive deep into that, but, uh, you know, it, it already starts with auspicious beginnings. Um, but more importantly, let's talk about the stage and the location of the stage, because I, I've always felt that 
that was the first step in the disaster of the the actual event the, that day uh, happening is you know where the stage was and what that stage was yeah well again it kind of speaks to the lack of planning or the lack of necessary time to have the sort of planning that they would need to do so they had constructed this stage specifically for Sears Point that was designed to kind of be nestled in a particular place where it would be well above the crowd. Everyone at Sears Point would easily be able to see the stage and it would kind of make logical sense in every way. And then when Sears Point falls through, they don't have time to make a new stage. Uh, They don't have time to kind of rethink the plans. And so the same stage that they had built ends up being brought to Altamont and just being is put flat on the ground. Yeah. And so instead of the the stage being, you know, some up a hill some amount yeah, basically up a hill and and out of reach, it's 3 feet off the ground. Yeah, uh, and in 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 a bowl at the bottom of a bowl. Right. So so there are two problems that emerge. One is that the people all the way at the lip of the stage are so close to the band that they can essentially climb onto the stage without much difficulty. Right. The second problem is that by virtue of the setup of Altamont, um, people are essentially standing from where the stage is and then up a hill. And so as more and more people come, there's more and more pressure on the stage from the people standing in the back. And it's not necessarily, sometimes it might be because they were pushing, but it's also just because inevitably people are trying to get a little bit closer to see. Exactly. They don't necessarily, they can't necessarily see that they're pushing anybody or that they're causing anyone any discomfort. But the inevitable result of people wanting to get closer or wanting to see the band is that people are getting pushed closer and closer to the stage and, and getting themselves into into kind of tighter and tighter uh, confines. Yeah. And, and, and just to, to point out that, you know, the, the, as you said, the, the stage was built for um, uh, Sears Point. Uh, so no fault of Chip Monk, who, you know, was brought in uh, to to help put this together. Uh, in fact, I think in your, in your book, he's like one of the few people that kind of come across as as the you know a hero of this thing or, or or at least you know just trying to do his job and get it done and get it done as best as possible yeah i mean i got to speak to him and and i felt like he had put more thought into the ways that the concert had gone wrong mm-hmm. i didn't feel like it was particularly uh, his responsibility but i also felt like he understood that something terrible had happened and that even if he wasn't necessarily the person immediately responsible for the the poor choices that had been made, that he felt a, a sense of kind of larger culpability as well. And, and I admired that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I know others have not. Uh, and, and as we discussed at the very beginning, part of the reason you wrote this book is because there were so many self-serving accounts out there. Yes, exactly. So I, I think the first big event that you know on stage that portends to murder is coming is during the Jefferson Airplanes set uh, and the altercation with Marty Ballin. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when Jefferson Airplane take the stage, there's already um, the Hell's Angels are already there, and they they seem to already be causing some kind of chaos in the audience. Um, and there are differing accounts about how exactly that got started or, or what accounted for it. I think probably the, the 
the account that made the most sense to me was that a lot of the people, a lot of the Hells Angels who were present uh, were actually uh, people who who were kind of probationary members and wanted to prove themselves, wanted to show the more senior bikers uh, how tough they could be, how how capable they were of kind of de- dishing out violence. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that um, that in combination with the alcohol and the drugs that were available and and you know, by most accounts, the kind of free and easy fashion in which the health angels were engaging with all of that led to a relatively early start for a lot of violent outbursts um, of the health angels kind of wading into the audience with the pool cues that they had brought along and just meeting people who were there, um, sometimes for some kind of perceived infraction, sometimes not even for that. And so the members of Jefferson Airplane can see some of what's going on from the stage. You know, it, it wasn't necessarily always the case that it was immediately clear what was happening. And it's, I don't think that the musicians could always tell. They just could see see scuffling uh, occurring exactly. near the stage in the audience. Exactly. But in this case, uh, Marty Ballin sees what the Hells Angels are up to, uh, ends up coming down off the stage to kind of get involved in the tussle. And he, you know, he later makes the point that this was something that, that he and the other members of Jefferson airplane had often kind of protected the audience in some fashion in, at other shows when things had gone wrong. Um, but here he ends up getting into an argument with one of the hell's angels, a guy named animal, animal right. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, again, it's worth noting that these aren't strangers. To no, each other. it's no. not. It's not like that. It's not like they're meeting for the first time here. They, these are people who've known each other for quite some time. Mm-hmm. And um, Marty Balance swears at Animal, and Animal kind of gives him a warning. You know, because the Hell's Angels have this sort of well-developed sense of what one is and isn't allowed to do to a Hell's Angel, and so he tells him, you know, don't talk to me like that. You're not allowed to talk to me like that. Um, and Balan does it again and, and ends up being knocked out by him. And, and that, that's really sort of the first moment where it's clear that this is not going to be a sort of ordinary concert, but that's something darker is at play. Yeah, you just had a, a, a star uh, get punched in the mouth by, uh, mm-hmm. by one of the security. I've been told by the photographer Rosie McGee, who was suffering her own issues, uh, drug-related, was uh, was laying in the backstage uh, in one of the uh, the vans, and they brought Marty in and, uh, you know, unconscious, and she kind of took care of him for a little bit. And then to your point, how these guys knew each other so well, Animal came back to apologize. And uh, he was like, you know, Marty, sorry, I didn't mean to do that. And Marty apparently got up and, and said, fuck you, and Animal smacked him again. <laughs> So. That's yeah. That's exactly correct. Yeah. So 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 that, there there you have it. it. This is not starting off well at all. No, not at all. No. And it's not just. I mean, the Marty Ballin story is sort of the the one of the more egregious aspects of that, and definitely the most public one. But accounts from people who are just members of the audience line up with that as well that yeah the hell's angels are out of control and and just kind of beating oh, and abusing they, 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 people in the yeah, audience th- this is the ultimate 
act of violence, murder, uh, was a culmination of a day filled with vicious violence. And if you think of the angels in their situation, uh, you know, they treat violence as a philosophy. Uh, they are now coupled with drugs and alcohol, and they've got a contract suggesting ultimate authority on the grounds. That is a recipe for disaster. Yeah, I mean, they're, they are believers in the righteousness of violence. And at a place like Altamont, they're out of their depth, obviously, and they're also out of their usual habitat. You know, even if one would make the argument that it would have made sense to have them at Golden Gate Park in a place that they knew, in surroundings that they knew, doing the kind of thing that they had presumably done before, they're, you know, nowhere near home. They're in a totally unfamiliar place. There are 300,000 fans there. Mm -hmm. They're supposed to be the only figures of authority there, right? There are no, there's no police. There's no real security staff. Um, and this is not in any way to let the Hills Angels off the hook, but way too much pressure, right? It's asking too much of them that even people who I think were would have been less likely to turn to fomenting violence, uh, it's just there aren't enough of them and they're not well-trained enough to handle the situation. Yeah, uh, you know, and in fairness to the angels, as we've discussed, you have now a mass of 300,000 people bearing down on you uh, in this bowl. You've been told to keep them away from the equipment, as you've done several times before. You've got a three-foot stage where people can easily climb on. The crowd is surging forward. You have these uh, uh, young angels, unproven, uh, that uh, want to make their mark. Again, we're just headed for, you know, a calamity uh, here. So Santana, yeah, it's, it's a, go ahead. Sorry, I was just going to say it's, it's a kind of perfect storm of poor planning and putting the wrong people in the wrong place. Yeah. So Santana opens the show, uh, uh, Jefferson Airplane, as we, we discussed. And then things kind of do mellow out a little bit during the Flying Burrito Brothers and Crosby, Stills and Nash and Young, right? Somewhat. I mean, there's still a lot of indication that fans in the audience, or at least fans in the audience who are relatively close to the stage are having a very unpleasant experience. Uh, it's less public and the show is able to go on with less interruption at this point. And, you know, my understanding is that Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young play a relatively short set in part because they're freaked out about what's happening. Yeah. Uh, and in part because everyone kind of wants to get the show on the road a little bit, that this is not a day to no. luxuriate in being together. No. And I think, you know, maybe most important to note is that there's one band that doesn't play, right? That right. the Grateful Dead are supposed to be <laughs> uh, among the bands leading the way to the Rolling Stones, and they end up not playing a, at all. A partial organizer. And, uh, you know, they, they the, the whole point is to, to bring them and the Stones together. And I think they're supposed to go on right before the Stones, right? Yes, that's correct. Yeah, so what happened? Why, why, why didn't they play? Well, they arrive at Altamont, and they're in their trailer where they have some view of what's going on. And I think seeing what the angels are up to and seeing how they're treating the audience and, and the kind of chaos that's happening everywhere, they, I think, somewhat understandably are terrified. Uh, the idea of having to go out there and face uh, that crowd that's so unsettled and to face the angels and try to put on a show and entertain people presumably strikes them as being more than they can bear. Uh, at the same time, 
I think that choosing to not play and choosing to not attempt to calm things down uh, is ultimately a poor decision. You think? I do. Uh, I think that in comparison with the Rolling Stones, uh, I think that both bands are equally responsible for the lack of planning. Mm -hmm. I think the Stones, I give them credit for at least going out there and doing the best they could to try to soothe things. And the dead essentially erase themselves from the day, you know, don't really participate, don't really serve as the public face of the show and are kind of content in the aftermath to let other people uh, assume the responsibility where they were at least as responsible, if not more so. Yeah, I, I you know they they are the local boys, uh, and I I can see your point that uh, by them getting on stage, uh, they they may have uh, been able to bring the vibe down a, a little bit, uh, maybe even with the angels themselves. But uh, you know, at the same time, you know, by now it, it is just it's chaotic. I think the trains left the station. I don't. I'm not sure it would have mattered whether they were on or or off. Uh, this. I, yeah, I'm not. I'm not necessarily disagreeing with you. I don't think that they could have saved the day. I'm. I'm pretty sure that they couldn't have. No. I think that it was more courageous of the Stones to at least give it a good faith effort than it was for the Dead to opt out of it. Yeah. And I think that it doesn't. It doesn't speak to me, at least. It doesn't speak highly of the Dead's willingness to assume responsibility that they become sort of invisible. Uh, in the aftermath of the show and let the Stones and, and some of the other more public faces assume responsibility for what went wrong rather than saying, oh, this was us too. We were part of this as well. Right. Well, the, the, the Stones, I think, were afraid that if they didn't play that the crowd would tear them uh, apart limb by limb. Uh, I think there's something they, they were, they, yeah, they were, well. they were facing different situations. Yeah. I mean, you, so. you can see in the film Gimme Shelter uh, the terror on their faces at various points of their of their performance. But all right. So the Stones come on. And and this is where things just go from bad to worse. Um, it's now night, right? In fact, I think they're the only band that plays in, 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 in the darkness. Well, the idea had been all along that the Stones would come on after dark, that the other bands would play during the day. Yeah, which which is early. This is this is December six uh, in the Bay Area, which means uh, you know the sun's setting at about four thirty or five o'clock. Yeah, it's it's not like it's ten p.m. Um, but I think the idea was that it would be more dramatic and, yeah. you know, mm, more of, of a, a, an experience to have the Stones come on after dark. And one of the things that they're critiqued for uh, in the aftermath of the show is that there is this very long delay um, after the preceding band finishes, that rather than come on right then and kind of wrap things up, they choose to stick with the plan of of this kind of dramatic finale. Really? So so they, 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 they waited for the Grateful Dead set to be finished, whether they played it or not. Yeah, I guess you could look at it like that. And and so there's a you know a delay of over an hour, maybe an hour and a half, where no one is playing. And I think that that also serves to um, rile things up further. So from your perspective, tell us about the murder. Well, during the day, during the concert, uh, Meredith Hunter and Patty Bredehoft go back to Meredith's car. She's interested in leaving in part because things are so chaotic and unpleasant. Um, 
and he feels differently. He feels like it'll be okay. You know, we're already here. Let's, let's stick it out. He goes back to his car, um, opens up the trunk and takes out a gun that he had brought along, which in retrospect is, is sort of one of the key moments where things take a another, turn yeah. for the tragic. Mm-hmm. Um, by the testimony of his sister, uh, the sense that I had was that the gun was not loaded, that he had no intention of using it necessarily, but that it was there to, at least in theory, kind of scare anyone off. Uh, who might threaten him. And I think, again, this is one of those places where it's helpful to to sort of be reminded of the context of race, right? That Meredith Hunter is a black man at a show. With uh, with a largely white audience, right? Yeah. Yeah. And that, you know, his sister, uh, when I spoke to her, had told me about driving around the Bay Area with her then husband only a few years prior to the show and coming on places in the kind of outer reaches of the Bay Area where she saw burning crosses. And, you know, I I think that it's a helpful reminder that it's understandable how someone could make this particular mistake of bringing a gun to a place where family lore or family history had it, that this is, you know, this is the kind of a place where people who, who hate black people yeah, are. The, the racism is 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 much stronger uh, uh, as soon as you you get out of the immediate Bay Area. Uh, certainly at the time, you know, e- even today, um, let's face it, it, it is a more uh, quote unquote conservative territory. Once you get past those uh, first coast mountains. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, I think that was part of the fear. And I think it's also helpful to remember that Meredith Hunter is 18 years old. Yeah. You know, he's someone who is not necessarily like most 18 year olds are not always going to make the right and, you know, smartest decision in every possible circumstance. Mm. So he and Patty end up going back into the concert, you know, back closer to the stage. And, and they had been relatively close to the stage for most of the day, which is why they had seen how bad things were, whereas other fans who were even, you know, 200 feet back uh, couldn't see or hear really anything, understood that there was some some reason why things were getting interrupted, but didn't encounter any of it themselves. So Meredith ends up finding a place to stand where he's standing on top of a speaker box. So he has, you know, a slightly better vantage point to see the Rolling Stones as they're playing. Mm-hmm. And at this point, the Hells Angels, you know, are, are kind of roaming the audience, just picking fights at, as they've been doing. Can, can I make one more point? He, he is an, he's in a lime green suit as well. So he must stick out like a light bulb. Right. So not only is he an African-American at a show where basically everyone else is white, right. he's wearing a lime green suit and, he, and, and a hat. Right. And so, you know, he's, he's just an immediately obvious person Mm -hmm. to note. And Mm -hmm. the Hells Angels uh, are a group that have a fairly lengthy track record of racially inclined violence that, you know, even earlier that same year, they had gotten in trouble with the police where they had uh, assaulted some African-Americans in a parked car that was on the same block as their clubhouse. Um, And that it turned into this sort of extended standoff with the police, you know, so there was a noted history of the Hells Angels who clearly on this day were inclined to dish out violence to everybody, no matter what, Mm -hmm. that they particularly were focused on African-Americans and other minorities. So 
one Hells Angel approaches Meredith and yanks him down from the speaker box. And maybe this had something to do with the mission of, you know, protecting the band's equipment. Maybe this was just about sort of showing someone else who was boss, but the angels um, kind of start this altercation where they yank him down, start punching him, beating him. Um, Hunter tries to run off from them and can't quite do it. And at that point, he ends up pulling out his gun. And, you know, again, this is the moment where he's he's doing something that I think is clearly uh, a mistake. And yet the consequences are so much more drastic than they should have been or needed to be. Uh, and I think that that's notable. So the angels uh, respond to the gun. And as we can see in the footage that the Maisel's brothers shoot, one hell's angel who we later, later learn is a guy named Alan Pissarro. Uh, pulls out his knife and responds to Hunter and ends up stabbing him a number of times. Several times. And so that's what we see in the footage. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of the, the image of Meredith Hunter that we have in mind. But I think it's also crucial to remember what takes place after this. And I think it's helpful to think about this in the context of, at least in theory, there's this idea of security being provided. If this were a kind of well-functioning police force, at this point, the threat has been eliminated, dissipated. Right. Um, Meredith Hunter no longer has a gun. I think it's most likely that the gun, you know, didn't have any bullets anyway. He's incapacitated with stab wounds. Right. Even if we assume that it does, uh, there's no longer any threat to anyone. And so at that point, what a kind of well-trained security force would do would be to arrest someone. Right. Right. At, at most. Right. But that's not what happens. Instead, what happens here is the Hells Angels, uh, and this is no longer in the footage. No, so it, this is this is just put together from accounts yeah, from, yeah. from people who, who were there and, and saw what took place. They end up kind of dragging him out of sight uh, under one portion of the stage and continue and stab him a number more times um, and end up kicking and punching and beating him, including with uh, a trash can lid, um, until he's completely still. And Patty Bredehoft and a number of other people in the audience who are relatively close by try to intervene, um, try to get them to stop, and other Hells Angels essentially hold off anyone from intervening until the angels feel like they have finished. And even after they finish beating him, they prevent anyone from coming to assist him in any way, uh, basically saying to Patty and to other people who they encounter, uh, he's going to die. You know, don't do anything. Just let him be. We're, he's going to die. That's what, that's what we want to take now, place. Yeah, we're, 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 we're letting him die. So go away. Yeah, that's, that's the, that is the judgment uh, called uh, by the angels. So it ends up taking quite a bit of time before anybody can get to Meredith Hunter. Um, after some some fits and starts, they end up carrying him away and bringing him for treatment. And at this point, it's clear to the you know medical staff that get a chance to look at him that he's not going to survive. Um, you know, so in the movie, there's there's this impression that he's going to be brought and, and kind of helicoptered yeah. away. And I think that that was the plan. Um, but by the time they get to that point, there are already 
people taking a look at him and he and and as one doctor says uh told i th- i think told rolling stone um that even if he had suffered these wounds inside the emergency room of a hospital where doctors and staff and all the necessary equipment was right in place that he wouldn't have survived even then that and and one of the witnesses talks about the ways in which the shock that he felt at kind of trying to help Hunter and realizing that he could essentially see right into the cavities of his body, that, you know, he had been so badly beaten and wounded that his, you know, his insides were visible. Wow. So the Stones are on stage and they don't know this is happening. They know a scuffle has occurred uh, and, and that's it, right? Yeah, I don't think it's clear to the Stones or anyone on stage that this is anything different from the other situations that than what happened. they've seen I all think, day long. Yeah, so I think in that sense, they they know that this is another instance of the Hell's Angels misbehaving and maybe assaulting somebody, but it, it's not clear to them that anything worse than that has taken place. So they finished their set and. How did the band feel immediately afterward? Were they told right then, or or did, what 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 did they do? They end up being they they kind of run for their lives to the helicopter that's nearby, and they're flown back to San Francisco and go back to their hotel. And I think it's at that point that they hear more details about what had gone wrong during their mm-hmm, time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And how did they react at the time? Uh, they kind of lash out against the Hells Angels that, you know, the Hells Angels had no business doing what they were doing and that, um, you know, this was sort of a disaster of ill-prepared people being put in positions of authority. And they, they do say some of that. I mean, especially Keith says some of this on stage in the, in the film. It's not like they made this up after the fact when they got together and planned something. No, they, they, they were trying to, as best as you know, young, let's face it, uh, musicians <laughs> are going to, to stand up against uh, a pack of, uh, of violent men. Yeah, no, there's, there's definitely some of this from the stage. And there's a kind of notable distinction between how Mick Jagger and Keith Richards handle it. The Mick Jagger uh, kind of retreats into, and, and I, I still give him some credit for trying to soothe people's spirits, but you know, kind of retreats into what I think of as hippie speak. You know, brothers and sisters, yeah. if we all love each yeah. other, let's yeah. just cool Come it. On. And Keith Richards is more let's along the lines of pointing at specific people in the audience, telling them to stop. And we assume it's Hells Angels, although we can't actually see it in the footage, and saying that, you know, if people don't cool out, the Rolling Stones won't keep playing. In that sense, I think that Richards maybe is more realistic about what can be accomplished or how it can be accomplished. The actual situation. Kind of, yeah. 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 So the next morning, the San Francisco Chronicle reviewed the concert. What 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 were the first reactions? So again, kind of speaking to this idea of the show having a kind of baked in sense of success, um, the early reviews are huge praise. And this is in part because just sort of because of the nature of the newspaper business, right, that the guy who covers the show uh, for the San Francisco papers, which also ends up being the AP report that goes out on the wires that 
you know, basically every newspaper in the country ends up printing. Because of the deadlines for when the newspaper has to be printed, he can only stay until the early afternoon on the day of the show. So the guy who covers it stays for a couple of hours, kind of gets a sense of what's going on, adds some color in, you know, says there were some early scuffles, but then everything sorted itself out. And it was a great day. 300,000 people had a terrific time and leaves it at that. And I think in most cases, you know, we wouldn't notice that that was sort of the limitation of the coverage. But here, by virtue of what it leaves out and sort of what the early version of the story is, um, it's kind of notable how much it gets wrong. And this kind of ends up being the impetus for telling the story differently, that, you know, the early verdict on Altamont is that it's a huge success and the people... Just like, yeah, it was Woodstock West. Exactly. You know, uh, another triumph of the counterculture. That that's that is the the version that's being proffered here, and the people you know the the music journalists who are at the show, especially people from Rolling Stone, kind of look at this early coverage and say that's not the show that I attended. Yeah, and yeah. Rolling Stone at the time, you know, is a very good newspaper, but not not necessarily a place you would think. It's not nationally known. It's not nationally known, and it's also not like a. It's an underground it, ma- magazine. Yeah, it's not. Yeah. It's not a place where where it's like hard hitting investigative no, journalism is being practiced. It's a place that talks about the counterculture, and yet I, I think what's what's so interesting about what happens here is that uh, the journalists themselves, including the editor John Burks, and and then also Jan Wenner, yeah. yeah. um, they basically say there's a story here. No one else has told it. Not only haven't they told it, but they're actually telling the wrong version of it. And we need to report something different. I think they also started to hear, you know, uh, accounts on KSAN, uh, KSAN, uh, where callers were coming in saying, um, wow, this is this is this this was a lot worse than what you've been telling. Right. Yeah. I mean, K- I think KSAN, uh, the KSAN broadcast helps them to realize that that's the case. But a lot of the journalists, a lot of the Rolling Stone people were at the show themselves. Mm-hmm. So they had these experiences as well. And, you know, one of them um, brings along a tape recorder because he thought that he was going to kind of record some of the really good performances. And instead he realizes partway through the show, oh, this is, you know, something important is happening here. And it's not clear if anyone else is recording it. So he starts he realizes he's too far away from the stage to actually capture anything on his tape recorder. And so every time Mick Jagger speaks during the stone set, he just repeats what Jagger says into his tape recorder uh, in an effort to kind of capture the specific details of the day. So, so even as the show is happening, some of the Rolling Stone staff is realizing that this is actually a very different situation from what they had expected and what they had bargained for and that they're kind of being pressed into service as journalists to, to cover the story. And so a few weeks later, uh, Rolling Stones uh, gives a, a full accounting, an expose uh, on this, and, and includes a 10-point plan for disaster. So how did that help change the narrative? Well, I think that what ends up happening is that the Rolling Stone story basically writes over what had come before it, that the previous version in which this was a big success, and yeah, a few people died, but then some babies were born also, which yeah. may or may not actually be true. A, a similar situation from Woodstock. A few people died and babies were born. Right. I think, again, you know, that's sort of a, a kind of 
prefabricated narrative that kind of fits the hippie aesthetic. In, in its place, the Rolling Stone story is suggesting something different, which is that this is actually a moment where the counterculture went wrong, right, where things did not go as planned. And, and part of what they're calling for uh, is a desire to do better, right, to, to fix what went wrong, to understand what's problematic about the counterculture itself and the counterculture's philosophy that can be augmented or changed. And then also understanding how to not make these mistakes again. So it's a pretty far-reaching call for change in a culture that's not necessarily always interested in hearing that kind of message. No, like anything, you know, mistakes are going to happen. You know, you just need to learn from them. And so what Rolling Stone magazine attempted to do was to lay that out. Um, you know, it was a um, ballsy call. Uh, you know, they weren't known as anything more than a music magazine. Now they were, A, number one, hitting hard news, uh, telling a different narrative that their audience wanted to hear, and at the same time about ready to piss off their favorite band. I mean, it's a newspaper that's literally called Rolling Stone, right? So it's it's understood right. that this is going to have certain consequences in terms of their relationship with the members of the Rolling Stones. And I give Jan Wenner a lot of credit for saying the story comes first. You guys report this story, tell it how it is, and I'll worry about fixing our relationships later. Okay, so back to the Angels. By now, they know they're in trouble. So how did they react? They kind of respond with a lot of bluster. Um you know, they end up sticking around and, and kind of being the last people to, or among the last people to leave the concert itself. And I think in part, that's a message of, we're just having fun. No one tells us what to do. We're going to keep on partying here. They sort of felt like we were put in this difficult situation. Um, someone tried to kill Mick Jagger, which is the version that gets spread around by them and by some other people. And, you know, we saved his life. We're, we're the heroes of the day. And that, I think, is challenged somewhat by the Rolling Stone coverage, which obviously critiques the Hells Angels pretty drastically, and then also by Alan Pissarro ending up getting arrested and put on trial for murder. So, you know, that also puts the Hells Angels into a much more defensive position than, than they might otherwise have been in. So let's bring poor Sam Cutler back in because uh, he's kind of left holding the bag because I believe almost all of the stones headed back to England. The yeah, next the day. stones disappear. Uh, they don't make any public statement. They say they're going to make a public statement and then they don't and they leave understanding that, you know, in the kind of pre-internet era that once they leave, the story is left behind and they don't really have to worry about it all that much anymore. So, yeah, Sam Cutler uh, ends up being the person who who sort of has to speak to what went wrong and, and try to uh, craft some kind of response to it. So what did the Maisels think the next day? Well, they they realized that something has happened that changes all of their expectations about what might take place. Uh, so that instead of this being some kind of beginning of a promotional film for the Stones or, you know, whatever they might imagine, that this is, this in and of itself is a film. That, you know, the story of Altamont is something that will serve as a movie in its own right. They've captured a cultural moment. Yeah, so they end up uh, asking some of the crew to look over the footage. They have one, two of the cinematographers uh, stick around in California and and pour over the footage to see if they've captured anything about Meredith Hunter's death. And 
the cinematographers end up not finding anything, in part because the Maisel's brothers tell them to look at the wrong song. Oh, yeah. They, they think it's Sympathy for the Devil, but it's actually Under My Thumb. Exactly. So so everyone kind of spreads around the word that it's Sympathy for the Devil. And so it ends up, they end up taking... Which would make sense, it, of course. It makes a ton <laughs> of sense uh, in terms of the symbolism, but right, just not the reality. And so, so they end up taking the footage back to New York and going through it and... And once they realize their mistake and, and look in, in the appropriate place, they find that they've uh, captured at least something of the, the moment where Meredith Hunter is killed. And so for them, I think it's this really powerful moment where they realize they have something of kind of historical and social purpose. And yet it also creates this artistic conundrum, which is how do you make this into a movie? You know, you have this footage of this misbegotten concert and it ends with Meredith Hunter's death, but that doesn't that doesn't necessarily add up to a movie that people will want to watch or one that makes coherent sense. Right? A movie that ends in in a death of someone that you've never seen before that comes out of nowhere, it's just it, it's hard to sustain any kind of narrative through line. So they really struggle with the footage for a long time. And I think this is where the kind of genius of Charlotte Zwerin comes through. You know, Albert and David Maisels were great filmmakers. And part of what I think was great about them was that they understood what their strengths were. And they under, both of them understood that the editing room was not really where they thrived. And Charlotte Zwerin, who was not herself at the concert or involved with the film at the point where the film is being shot, is brought in to edit it. And so she takes a number of months to kind of pour through it and have the her and the assistant editors kind of work through some of the footage all along kind of wrestling with this question of how do I make this into a movie? How do I make it into something uh, that has the necessary tension and drama and, and catharsis that one might want to have? And so she's, she's the one who eventually crafts the idea that um, the aftermath. Yeah, that in order in order for this to be a movie, they actually have to go back to the Rolling Stones. They have to talk to them and right. have them see the footage and respond to it. So so they end up uh, returning to London uh, to speak to the Rolling Stones, and ultimately only Mick Jagger and Charlie Watts are willing to do it. But this footage, where the filmmakers show Jagger and Watts Hunter's death and and some of the remainder of the show and captured their responses to it really kind of fills out the concert. It fills out the film and, and gives us more of a sense of a kind of narrative through line here that otherwise might not have existed. It's, you know, it's interesting uh, having seen the film several times, you know, you, you get that final reaction, that turn, uh, from Jagger, uh, where there's a lot written on his face. It's it's left up to you, uh, the viewer, to fill in his thoughts. And I, I think that's a result of this this cinema technique that they're using called direct cinema, um, which, as you point out in the book, has its its pluses and its minuses. And it's strange that, you know, they're not asked questions directly on what did they think, how they felt. What's your take on that? Yeah, I mean, I think that direct cinema is is a kind of brilliant style of filmmaking, but it clearly has certain limitations. The, the advantage it has is that 
it, it allows the filmmakers to just stand back and record what happens and not get in the way of the story. The downside, I think, is that in a situation like this, where they're having Jagger and Watts kind of return to the scene of the crime and offer their thoughts, is that they're taking away, they're asking the Stones to kind of perform for them, but without giving them any cues. And, and I say that in, in the sense that in another situation, in a kind of more ordinary situation, if I were to be asking you about some difficult experience that you had or asking you to comment on it, I would, I would ask you, I would say, how does this make you feel? And that never happens here in part because the rules of direct cinema just don't allow for that kind of questioning. And so we as the viewers are reading a tremendous amount into how Jagger in particular is responding to what he sees, but he's sort of being asked to just perform there, there isn't any questioning. There isn't really, he isn't given the kind of normal conversational uh, back and forth that would allow him to, to kind of share his feelings. And I feel like um, that's, that's missing somewhat from, from this kind of frame that's constructed around the Altamont footage. So on December 6th, 1970, the one year anniversary, uh, the Maisel's film, Gimme Shelter is released and it, becomes the definitive story of the events of the day. Do you think it was an honest presentation? I do. I think it's an honest presentation, but it's also a limited presentation, um, in part because the filmmakers aren't everywhere, uh, in part because of the limitations of direct cinema, where there isn't really a way to have any kind of um, explanation Right, so we're just kind of thrust into the middle of Altamont and expect it to understand it as best we can. But there's no one there to kind of tell us any of the information that we've just been talking about, right? Not about the Hells Angels or where they come from, not about the planning for the show. Anything that has been filmed is fair game to be included. Anything that hasn't can't really be included in any fashion. And so, you know, I think, again, this is a sort of example of how the Grateful Dead excise themselves from the record, but by virtue of not participating in the film particularly, by virtue of really only appearing for a few minutes, um, they're mostly left out of the story. And so the movie becomes very much about, will the Rolling Stones take responsibility for what took place at Altamont? And that's in part because, A, this is a movie that's bought and paid for to some extent by the Rolling Stones, and B, um, because the Rolling Stones are willing to appear on film. So direct cinema, doesn't it doesn't really allow for the Maisels to say, oh, and P.S., the Grateful Dead have opted out, but we need to talk about them as well. I laugh because uh, there's a film of Monterey Pop, 1967. There's a, a film of Woodstock. There's a film of Altamont. All three of the Grateful Dead are in. All three of them, they are not in the movie. That's true. Exactly. So where are all these people today? I mean, we know the Rolling Stones. They're, they're huge. They, uh, uh, you know, the obvious players we know, uh, they're about ready to come on tour uh, in, in America again uh, in, uh, in 2019. They've just announced dates. Uh, you know, we know the story of the Grateful Dead, who after uh, uh, years of toil on the road, uh, finally achieved huge success in the, in the 1980s. And of course, uh, you know, uh, their, uh, their founder and, and spiritual guide, uh, Jerry Garcia, died in 1995. 
you know, uh, you know, Sam Cutler's still around uh, doing his thing. I know the Maisels uh, have passed uh, uh, here. Um, what about Patty uh, Bredhoff? Is, is, she, is she still around? She's still around. Uh, she still lives in the Bay Area, as far as I know. She was not interested in, in speaking with me for this book. Um, I think that she's sort of had her fill of, of talking about this. But, yeah, she's she's still around. Uh, the Hells Angels, at least the Hells Angels who were at the show, uh, are mostly dead at this point. Yeah, Alan Passaro was uh, was put on trial in 1971, but but acquitted uh, uh, due to self defense, right? Yeah, his lawyer ended up making a kind of novel claim that he was he said that he had acted in self defense in the preservation of others. So meaning that he wasn't defending himself so much as def- protecting someone else. Um, right. And and got off. So they stuck with the story of saving the exactly exactly, and uh, Passaro ends up dying in kind of mysterious circumstances in the 80s and and it sort of speaks to what happens with the hell's angels in general where they go from being a kind of quasi criminal organization to being a basically outright criminal organization and sonny barger who's one of the hell's angels leaders he writes in his memoir about this about how um Altamont kind of proved their bona fides, you know, that they were a group of people who wouldn't crack under the pressure of a hostile press or, uh, you know, law enforcement. And so they end up being recruited into a lot of, of kind of drug mule work where the angels are, are put in place to, to transport drugs across the country. Um, so they end up kind of getting embroiled in a lot of that. And, and the Hells Angels are, are in general kind of devoted to a sort of hard living aesthetic. So basically all of the bikers who are present at the show aren't around anymore. I ended up speaking to one biker who wanted to remain nameless, um, who wasn't an angel, but was one of the bikers there with the angels that day. And um, he was still around, although he his health also was not fantastic, but um, basically the rest of them are gone. Yeah. All these guys are 70 plus years old. Right. Right. Yeah. And um, Meredith Hunter's family also was, was a very compelling story. I I got to learn quite a bit about what had happened to them in the aftermath. And, and, you know, his, his mother uh, had a lot of mental health challenges. and, And I think that the experience of her son being killed kind of, you know, made it even worse, obviously. And his sister, um, Dixie Ward, had to, you know, endured not only Meredith's death, but also the death of her husband, who who died in a kind of freak accident uh, not too long prior, and ended up having to... Um, Relive. Yeah, that. just sort of deal yeah. with the, the multiple uh, traumatic challenges of, of her family. And, um, in, you know, in, in raising children and, and in having a family of her own kind of kept it from them, didn't really share with her children all the difficulties that her family had endured, but that it was, it was kind of clear to them that, that, you know, hard, terrible things had happened in the past. And, and so um, Meredith's niece, Tammy Parker, uh, actually didn't know specifically what had happened to her uncle. She knew that he had died and she knew that it was under some kind of tragic 
circumstances, but hadn't been aware of all the details until she was an adult and was flipping channels and, you know, was watching, I believe, a VH1 special that was about kind of um, infamous moments in rock history. And they Mm. got to the segment where they were talking about Altamont and she realized that the person who had been killed, the person they were talking about was her uncle Meredith and Mm. kind of understood it. That was, was, you know, shocked, uh, speechless by it, but also understood at that moment, the weight of what her mother had carried for her whole life and, and the burden that she had kind of kept from them and understanding how much, her family had had to endure and how painful it had been and, and how her mother had decided to, you know, keep that to herself and, and kind of bear the weight of it all alone. So is it, is it really a fair description to lay the end of the sixties on a single event? You know, is the takeaway from Altamont that this is that moment you know, why are we still talking about it like this? I, I don't think it's fair to call it the end of the 60s. I think it was a convenient shorthand, given that it was actually the end of the 1960s, right? This takes place in December yeah, 1969. December, December 6, 1969, right. I think right. that in the same way that Altamont, that Woodstock, um, was sort of the apotheosis of the 60s, 60s culture, um, it was mm-hmm. a kind of, or was, was treated as such. I think it was convenient mm-hmm. to also think about Altamont as being like, okay, this 1960s are over. It's time to move on to something else. But I think it's fairer to say that the 60s rolled out slowly and irregularly and didn't happen at the same time in every place. And so the 60s go on well into the 70s in a lot of places. Um, So in that sense, I feel like, yeah, the end of the 60s rhetoric is definitely overblown. I think that it's still a story that people are interested in, in part because it involves so many famous figures uh, from the 60s, in part because it kind of speaks to some of the ultimate failings of the ideology of the counterculture. And I, I think also because of this question of race, you know, that it, it in the same way that even though it's rarely associated uh, with it, I think. I think it's it's similar to some of the famous moments from the civil rights movement in the sense of kind of articulating the the challenges and the difficulties and the, the tragedy of of the traumas of race in our country which goes on today. Absolutely. What's next for you, Saul? Um so after writing this book which was uh, rewarding, but, you know, obviously a, a kind of dark and difficult subject to write about. I ended up uh, working on a, a book on a lighter subject and have just finished writing a book about the TV show Friends, which is going to be coming out next year. Yeah. Oh, very cool. Now I have the song stuck in my head. <laughs> Sorry about that. that. <laughs> Saul Austerlitz, Saul thanks so much for being with us today on Deep Oh, thanks so much. It was a great pleasure to chat with you.
we're splitting. You know, if those cats can't, if you people, we're splitting, man, if those cats don't stop beating everybody up inside. I want them out of the way, man. I don't like you. Hey, he's got a gun. people. Hey, people. Come on, let's be cool. Wow, that was an exploration. I told you we'd be digging deep on this one. What fun. And there certainly were some new ideas floated on this uh, well-worn subject. I really want to thank Saul Austerlitz for the time to speak about Just a Shot Away, Peace, Love, and Tragedy with the Rolling Stones at Altamont. We highly recommend going out and getting it for yourself. Uh, Let us know what you think after reading it. Yes, Altamont looms large. Uh, Yes, it was the worst of the big concert festival events in 1969. It was the only one where a murder occurred, and perhaps a surprise that uh, that was the only one that awful night. Uh, Rock and roll learned a serious lesson that evening. But remember, it was one of three big concerts that drew over 300,000 people. Altamont was disaster. Woodstock could have turned into disaster without the luck of the gods. And then there's Hyde Park that uh, Americans tend to discount because it didn't happen here. (laughs) And it was an unmitigated success. So the Rolling Stones put on the best and worst of them. Hmm, interesting. 1969 was a lot of things for rock and roll, and uh, the big festivals were only one piece of the story. We will have a lot more to say on that over at the Rock and Roll Archaeology podcast. Uh, Keep an ear open for that one. I'm Christian Swain, and as always, keep up the rockin'. Oxfam America works with people in more than 90 countries to save lives, develop long-term solutions to poverty, and campaign for social change. And we do it with the help of our friends in the music world. The Beatles were Oxfam supporters back in the day. So were the Stones. And through the years, musicians and music fans have helped Oxfam push hard to work for a just world without poverty. Folks like Radiohead, Coldplay, Pearl Jam, DJ Shadow, and many, many more have encouraged their fans to join the effort. You can too. Go to OxfamAmerica.org to learn how you can help. Deeper Digs in Rock, produced and hosted by Christian Swain. All sound design and incidental music by Busy Signal Studios. All quotes performed by actors unless noted. Playlists can be found at iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. 
please purchase these great and important tracks. All songs, clips, and references can be found on our show notes. Please visit rnrap.com for more information. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.